COVID fatigue, Zoom fatigue, these are all terms we've become far too familiar with over the last year. And as the third wave hits us, a new study says the rate of burnout among Canadian office workers is higher than the global average. And for more on this, we're joined now by Janet Candido, who is a human resources expert, and she joins us here now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Janet, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Appreciate you being here. Uh, this new report, it's from Microsoft, and it says, yeah, Canadians, we are significantly less happy and more stressed than our global counterparts uh, you know, around the world. So, uh, first of all, has that been your experience? Uh, well, I haven't done a global <laughs> study, but yeah, it is my experience that workers are, are very stressed. Yeah, and why is that? Uh, what are we hearing from uh, workers, uh, and why is the stress levels, do you think, uh, so high in this country right now? I think it has to do with the remote working large. I mean, certainly COVID and all of the anxieties around that don't help, but people are working from home, and what they tell me is they have no separation between work and home. There's, uh, they don't have a commute uh, and in many cases, they feel that they're working longer hours and they feel that they're expected to work longer hours. So something that uh, initially I think was seen as a positive by a, a lot of people that they could continue to work, that they could be at home and that there's a little more uh, family time without a commute and such, as you just uh, said, is actually turning out to be a bit of or more of a negative. Absolutely. Before, uh, before, in the before times, the ability to work from home was one thing I heard over and over again from people. I wish I could work from home. Uh, I would like to work from home. And they cited all of the positives being the lack of commute. Now what I'm hearing is, please let me come back to the office. Hmm. And there's a lot of that to do with socialization because, you know, we've talked about this from time to time. And I just mentioned Zoom fatigue off the top. And while it's been you know, great that technology has been able to keep the office connected uh, remotely, virtually, it just really isn't the same as face-to-face or human connection or contact? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, the big thing. And now, you know, if you're in an office, you run into people, you're going to get a coffee and you stop and have even a two-minute chat with somebody or... or um, you have an idea and you walk over to a coworker's desk and you talk about it. Now you have to schedule these and, and the niceties are gone. Now, I mean, people might say, how are you doing? But it's not really an intro into how are you doing? The, the chit chat, the, so, the small talk, the things that help us feel connected to other people aren't translating into a Zoom meeting or, or um, the, the weekly check-in from the supervisor to see how you're doing work-wise. So our contact with our coworkers and with our managers tends to be mostly around work. Right? And that just uh, obviously is not uh, you know, uh, helping when it comes to feelings of isolation and feeling uh, lonely, and that's something that uh, a lot of at-home workers are experiencing uh, right now. And what does this mean, uh, do you think, Janet, for companies as a whole, both employers and employees? Are we starting to see, because of this, a burnout, uh, a lack of, or a drop in productivity? I think we probably are. 
Um, I'm not sure that we're measuring it to to an extent that we're actually able to to quantify it, but I do think we are. I think workers are pulling back, um, partly because they feel that they're being used is a strong word, but used by their their companies to produce more than they were before. Partly because they're actually feeling the fatigue. You can only you can only do so many Zoom meetings before your eyes tell you to stop, right? So, yeah, I do think we're probably seeing a, a lowering in productivity, and we're probably uh, seeing organizations start to plan for having workers come back to the office at least part of the time, if not full-time. And do you think that would be welcomed by employees, at least a certain segment or a percentage of employees? Because one of the other things, and we've uh, talked about this previously, is although people just uh, dreaded and hated the commute, it was kind of a buffer between the office and home, and you don't have that anymore. When you're working at home and you don't have that uh, commute, you're either on Zoom, on the computer, working, or the family, uh, the kids and such are, are right there. You do not have kind of that, you know, me time or alone time that you might have otherwise had in the car during the commute. That's right. Absolutely. You know, I often tell people when they're starting to, to feel really stressed or, or they're having difficulty coping is that they need to set aside some time at the end of the day that has nothing to do with work in particular and probably nothing to do with family either, even if it's just 15-minute meditation or yoga or, you know, to run into the bathroom and scream at, uh, at the window for a while. It's something that allows them to, to actually have a break from, from all the noise during the day. All right, because I was going to ask you, do you have any tips for those that are feeling a, a bit of burnout? And uh, I think those are all uh, great pieces uh, of advice, but really just put it in your calendar, right? And make sure that you have got some kind of quote-unquote me time. I mean, obviously exercise, going for a walk, getting on a treadmill, uh, doing whatever is uh, such a great release as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, exercise is a great thing. I personally favor the going into the bathroom and screaming at the window. <laughs> But, you know, you do what, what works for you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how about employers? Do they need to be a little more acutely aware of this, uh, what's going on uh, with the employees and uh, making sure they're helping them through this uh, period and ensuring that they're not burning out? Because, again, it is to an employer's advantage to make sure that they've got happy, productive employees. Employers need to be more aware of this now. Uh, for those that had employees working remotely already, they, they had a lot of this figured out. But so many employers didn't, and they had to, to spin really quickly to getting people set up to work from home and how were they going to manage and how were they going to monitor productivity. And that became such a focus for them because they weren't ready Um you know, to deal with the remote workforce. And, and now they have to they have to figure that out. I think the the management level in companies are burning out as well. Just so, finally, Janet, sorry, do you think that this is a bit of a predictor? Because everybody's trying to figure out what the working world is going to look like uh, post-pandemic once we're through this and the vaccines are finally here and in people's arms. I mean, is this a predictor that uh, perhaps, you know, if we're hearing from the Canadian workforce that they are significantly less happy and more stressed working at home, that there's going to be a greater return to the workplace than maybe we, we thought originally? 
Oh, I believe so. Yes, I believe so. I don't think we're going back to doing things the way we were doing them before at all. Uh, I think we're going to have to be more cognizant of what employees need in order to be productive and and happy at work. Um, And we're going to have to to be flexible enough to, to accommodate that. All right. Janet, thank you so much for the time with us this afternoon. Really appreciate the discussion. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. There's a Janet Candido, who is a human resources expert on, yeah, the survey from Microsoft that cites uh, us here in Canada. We are higher than the global average when it comes to being significantly less happy, more stressed and more burnt out on the job. Okay, it's Wednesday, and here is our friend and vaccine researcher, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, who joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Gorfinkel, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Well, thanks for being here as always. want to start uh, here this week with this uh, new report that's out that says thousands of staff at Toronto's University Health Network still have not been vaccinated. As a matter of fact, uh, this uh, prompted uh, an email from the group's uh, president, uh, you know, asking why people have not registered uh, for their uh, shots. Uh, what makes healthcare workers vaccine hesitant, do you think? It's the very same stuff that we see in other anti-vaxxers. Not, I hate to use the term anti-vaxxer because anti-vaxxer is actually just a couple of percent of the population, people who are basically anti-science. That's not the vaccine hesitant. The vaccine hesitant are asking the very same questions that we are. Questions about safety and side effects. Questions about the speed at which vaccines have come to market and the fear that science was somehow sacrificed. It wasn't. What sped up the process was that billions of dollars of government research fueling the efforts and, of course, pre-purchasing the vaccines, which Canada had done, making the vaccines in advance and planning their delivery. So all of this added to faster vaccines to the market. That's one aspect. And of course, you can't ignore other aspects. Let's consider for a moment indigenous communities. They struggle with trusting a government that not so long ago had taken their children to abusive residential schools. So what helps with that is having role models in those affected communities speak with the population in their own languages. That makes a big difference. It's just how now common. Also have, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, you dropped out there for a second. Go ahead. Mention, yeah, that anti-vaxxers are, are actually a small percentage. What's so concerning about making vaccination hesit- mandatory in healthcare settings is that right now it's not at all. And what we have is a hodgepodge of different policies between different hospitals, long-term care, and retirement homes. So it's a big problem. In order to combat that, we could have a second route, which is the route in which provincial and territorial governments set clear rules that individual employers would have to comply with. That means hospitals, private and public long-term care and residential homes would have to follow the same set of rules. That would make a very big difference. It's actually too crucial to leave to individual private and public institutions. Well, let me ask you a couple things there, and let's start with just how common do you think vaccine hesitancy is, sorry, amongst healthcare workers? Because obviously, I mean, uh, they're intimately involved with uh, healthcare, uh, the industry, they might have a, a 
better handle on uh, and uh, watching things a little more closely than the average person when it comes to uh, developing uh, drugs and uh, vaccines. So does that make hesitancy, perhaps uh, those factors a little more common amongst those that work in healthcare? I would agree with that. And, and moreover, if you took a, take a look at an Angus Reid poll, there's some good news in it. It showed that two-thirds of Canadians said they want the shot ASAP, with another 16% saying they'd eventually get one. So that means just over four out of five Canadians hope to get the shot. And now the bad news. The memo from Ontario's Ministry of Long-Term Care, this is just two weeks ago, and it said we have 95% of long-term care residents now vaccinated. Woohoo! That's fantastic. But only two thirds of the staff in Ontario nursing homes have had the vaccine. So let's hope that's not representative of Canada as a whole. So we know that healthcare workers are not only at increased risk of getting infected, but of also spreading COVID 19, and both to our patients and to other healthcare workers. All right, let me ask you about uh, vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaxxers as well. You've mentioned that a, a couple of times, and I understand that that's a question that you get to quite often as well. Is vaccine hesitancy, is it in the same category or the same thing as anti-vaxxer or anti-vaccination? Uh, there is a difference there, though. They're totally different animals. You know, so anti-vaxxers are truly anti-science and against the concept of vaccination altogether. And I would like to include myself and thinking people into the vaccine-hesitant category. We, we're asking reasonable questions. These are the questions that ultimately drive research. These are the questions, the same questions that Health Canada is asking. What are the side effects? Well, this much we know, injection site pain, fatigue, mild fever, flu-like symptoms that are mild. People can still go to work with these. People ask, but what about rare long-term side effects? So this is it. We don't know 100% because the, all of the vaccine research is still ongoing by the companies themselves. There could be longer-term side effects. The vast majority of side effects will announce themselves within the first three months. We know that this, the side effects are, are rare, and so far, despite millions of doses being given worldwide, we have yet to see any serious side effects, including that of blood clots as was reported for AstraZeneca. Now, we, we have to own what it is that we still do not know. How long will the immunity last? We don't know. Do vaccines reduce transmission of the disease? And data from Israel points very strongly to, yes, they probably do, but we still have more data to collect on that. But these type of questions form the very backbone of informed consent. All right. And does mixed messaging, does that also contribute to vaccine hesitancy? You just mentioned AstraZeneca a second ago, and they've been in the news again over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, Health Canada is now backing the safety of the uh, vaccine, but they say that they uh, might change the uh, labeling on uh, AstraZeneca. And once again, uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, this is just another layer on top of several stories regarding AstraZeneca that the public is trying to make some sense of. Absolutely. And let's, let's try to break it down into two sources of data. That's really what we have. We have AstraZeneca, the company itself, and we have real-world data. So let's focus for a moment on AstraZeneca. They've done two big trials, the first of which was about 24,000 volunteers. 
And the problem with the first trial was they did not include many people over the age of 65. The vast majority were younger than that, so that created some hesitancy. However, there were no deaths. There was a, a, a tremendous decrease in hospitalization, in fact, an 80% decline in hospitalization after just one dose. And it was overall 62% effective in reducing symptomatic infections. So that's the first trial they did. And then the big news earlier this week was they let out a second trial. This was largely done in the U.S. with some 32,000 volunteers. And this time, one out of five participants were over the age of 65. So, and again, no deaths, no hospitalizations, and a 79% decrease in symptomatic infections. So that caused a bit of a, a, a pushback from the National uh, Advisory Board in the United States. And the reason they did is because they hadn't included a few cases that would have taken down that success rate from 79% to closer to 70%. So they were upset about that. But in truth, the, no one argued that the AstraZeneca vaccine and those over 65 would essentially eliminate the likelihood of dying, nor did anyone argue about the decline in hospitalizations. That's not what was up for debate. So that's the first part. Then you have what's called real-world data. And here, it's, it's super strong. Remember I was talking in the tens of thousands. Now we're talking in the many millions. So we have the Scottish study and the Public Health England study. And what they showed was that the AstraZeneca vaccine was actually more effective than the Pfizer vaccine. So people, people are so hung up on Pfizer, oh, it's 94, 95%. Actually, the AstraZeneca study done in the Scottish study and in the Public Health England study showed a 94% decline in hospitalization. Mm. And that's compared to Pfizer's 85% decline. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Can I ask you, and I only got about 30 seconds here, but when it comes to vaccine hesitancy and all of this uh, quote-unquote mixed messaging, does the public, do we all just need to realize it's kind of like we say here in the news business, it's a developing story, breaking news, it's a developing situation. It's the same thing with the uh, vaccines. We're learning more uh, every day with the larger samples, uh, bigger sample sizes, if you will, and um, continuing uh, research. So we've got to be able to uh, kind of follow the science and the data. I would agree with that. And I think that's what good science is. Good science is intellectual agility. It's also public health policy agility. The ability to take a look at new information and change what we do on the basis of that. Take Ontario's plan right now. It's pretty exciting, right? So the new phase two that's just being rolled out now is a lot more nuanced than the old school. Old school, based on age alone. Now what they're doing is vaccinating the hotspots. Makes a lot of sense. Dividing people into the three highest risk groups, high risk or at risk. That makes a lot of sense as well. So I love this new nuanced approach. I love its intellectual agility to move with the new scientific knowledge. And I think that's, that's definitely the right way to go. All right. Dr. Gorfinkel, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. Many thanks, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. A return to normal is being anticipated by a lot of people, welcomed by many people. But what if you don't want to go back to normal? What if going to, say, a crowded restaurant or a concert full of people, like at the Scotiabank Arena, what if that fills you with anxiety? 
Dr. Katie Kamkar is with the University of Toronto's Department of Psychiatry and joins us now for more on this here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Nice to have you back with us. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, there is a growing number of voices on social media, Doctor, basically all saying the same thing, that I don't really want to go back to normal. I kind of like where we're at now, and it's uh, being called re-entry anxiety. What can you tell us about this? I think these are such um, genuine uh, concerns and very much a fair, uh, fair questions, and I'm quite confident these are things that probably on the mind of, of most of the people, very normal. But I think here again, as human beings, whenever we are faced with uncertainty, um, and uncertainty drives anxiety, drives a lot of worries. And often when we have worries, it's about the future. The future is not known. And we might associate it as well with a catastrophic thing. So we really, I think it's very helpful to not to forget the present time, the, the moment, as well as to give us credit for how much we have been able to overcome and the tremendous strength and resiliency we have shown. Going back to last year when the pandemic onset, very short amount of time for us to really optimize our technology computer skills, our virtual Zoom, uh, you know, uh, skills, um, the, again, creating new routine and new normal. We did not have to do this once. We have done this today to up continuously because of so much fluidity going on, continuously having to create a new normal, then another new normal, and to this the date, of course, because, again, there's so much fluidity. I do recall last year, it was around springtime, people had, again, a lot of worries about coming back in fall. What are we going to do? The new normal? We're going to go back to work or we're going to go back to crowded situations? And again, the concerns were very genuine. I think probably most, if not all of us, we had the same thoughts or maybe worries and so on. But I think that here, always what I said is let's focus on our current worries and, and let's also distinguish them from our potential worries. And here, on, under healthier, more structured circumstances, I would say, yeah, these are probably current worries. But because there's just so much fluidity going on, so much unknown, we actually do not know. We do, because right now we are seeing day-to-day changes, week-to-week changes. And sure enough, if we look at the worries that we had back spring and look at what happened in October, right? So here, it's really looking at focusing on right now, what is it that, how can take it out every single day, one week at a time, And whenever the situation comes, trusting that we will be able to create again and to adjust to another new normal because it's going to be a new normal. It's going to be also different, hopefully, in also a better way, in a more structured way because we have also learned a lot. There's also this sense of growth, personal psychological growth from so much that we have gone through. Yeah, you know, what you just said there about uncertainty, I think, is so important and so powerful. And if anyone is feeling this anxiety uh, right now, because you're absolutely right, week to week, day to day, it seems like there's so much information coming at us anymore. It's hour to hour we have uh, changes in our lives. And to recognize it's that uncertainty about where we're at and where we're going, when you recognize that, does it really help you deal with those anxieties? 
Absolutely, because we know it's about the awareness of what's going on and the anxiety, the uncertainty, and rooting ourselves to the moment and the present time. So, and actually, there is a skill that is always very helpful, as we say, it's called the sensory grounding technique. It helps us to feel grounded to the moment and present time. And it's about using our senses. What do I see? What do I hear? Um, what does my body touch? The sense of smell and taste. And so the more we are able to use our senses to feel grounded in the moment and present time, then we also know that our emotions and our thoughts become also more grounded to the actual moment. So we really want to put our time and focus and energy into our current worries. So right now, making sure I'm able to make a day-to-day meaningful activities, self-care, being able to juggle a variety of roles and responsibilities, and of course, the the sense of um, ensuring our safety of the self and of the others, but very much trusting that, again, whenever that new normal is going to come, because, again, every week, and again, as you mentioned, hour to hour, right? So hour to hour, day by day, week by week, we will be able to adjust just as we have done. And it's a, quite incredible what we have gone through, the resiliency that we have shown um, over the last year. And, again, when the time will come, then, again, it's going to be this new normal, and we we will be hopefully also again be able to design it in a work that in a way that will work best. All right. Some people might have this re-entry anxiety because of uncertainty, as we've been talking about here, and they're just not sure what the new normal in the future is going to look like. But there's others, uh, Doctor Kamkar, who have re-entry ex- anxiety. Sorry, because they just like the way life is now. As horrible and as tragic as the past year has been, there are people who believe that this has been a much-needed reset when it comes uh, to their lives. I'm looking at one of the uh, tweets here online that uh, reads, I will not miss the pandemic and the uh, virus, but I will miss the time I've had now with my wife and cats. Seeing them all day long, every day has been awesome. And I don't want to go back to normal on so many levels. Uh, What would your advice be to people that are feeling like they're kind of enjoying this reset? Yes, and and, uh, we have also heard that a lot as well. And uh, fair enough, there are tremendous positives and so on. I think, again, it will be that, again, some people have, it's an individual case by individual case. Nevertheless, yes, these are common concerns that we often hear. But again, it's case by case. And I always say to everyone, we need to develop our own individualized pathway to self-care, resiliency, being able to balance everything out. Um, And it can also be for some people, they have been able to, again, through more information, through more consultation, whether, again, they now know or do not know, that, again, come with that, again, new normal, whatever that new normal is going to be, being able to create a new combination, uh, a new combination of, let's say, at home and then also outside home tasks. So some people have are, are on the way to be able to design that. This is not the case, of course, for everyone, but very much trusting that whenever, again, that time comes with the information that will be available that to focus on what we have control over because with more information is also power consulting um, seeking support it can also be talking to organization it could be talking to employers and etc etc but it's really whenever the time comes with more information we have more control. We will feel less helpless, less powerless. Right now, because there's just so much uncertainty, so much we don't know, we feel even more powerless. So it's really trusting when the information will be there. We're like, okay, 
I'm going to put my time and energy into what I have control over, into what I'm able to do, seeking support, consulting, and creating whatever recipe that will work for me. And of course, learning that, yes, as you mentioned, that great example, what are some of the positives that I've been able to really, that, that have been able to enrich my life. Yeah, and would part of that control be maybe people talking to their employers and really, you know, be easy on yourself and uh, really take your time. And if you've got some anxiety when it comes to uh, a re-entry into whatever the new normal uh, looks like, maybe talk to your employer and say, this has really been working for me. Uh, can we maybe meet uh, halfway uh, when it comes to my working arrangements, uh, that, that sort of thing? Absolutely. And these are all part of seeking social support. When we mean um, seeking social support, it is what we call instrumental support. So this is essentially asking for help, seeking help. There is informational support. So this is when, let's say we are in the midst of something and I need to gather information to be able to problem solve and to feel better. Then there is um, this emotional support. This is when we need sympathy, we need empathy. And then there is feedback. So this is when, let's a decision has been made and I need to seek feedback. So there are different types of support and we do know seeking support has always continuously been found to be such a strong uh, protective factor. So yes, um, there are large people as much as they can gather consultation and information, including with their employers, then anything that can help to ease the anxiety, but again, focusing on the current worries as well. Yeah, just finally, Dr. Kamkar, do you think that uh, people have got anxiety when it comes to their social skills? Because I have to believe they've become uh, rusty over this uh, last year because, you know, interacting virtually and on Zoom and Teams and that sort of thing is not the same as interacting face-to-face in the office. I mean, it's been forever in the city. I think uh, anyone's ever gone for drinks, you know, with coworkers or out for a happy hour, and there could be anxiety around uh, your social skills and uh, really interacting with people again. I think, again, these are fair questions. I think that if we had any struggle, of course, with anxiety in social situations, and suddenly because of the pandemic, we have not engaged um, with anyone in person, we have not attended social situations that, yes, um, time will be essential here, graduated exposures, so that gradually we can trust ourselves. So that might take more time. Again, graduated exposures, we are able to regain our confidence gradually. Yes. Um, In other circumstances, of course, I think probably the case for all of us here, there is going to be that readjustment gradually. But if this is something that we enjoyed before and we missed it, the adjustment to it will become much easier. We also all social beings. We know that even whenever we are close to someone, uh, we know it activates the hormones, positive hormones. We are able to feel uh, the positive energy as, as, as well. So, And also, that virtual mode uh, has thankfully um, allowed as well this, this um, tremendous and very rich and quality connection as well. But again, as you said, uh, in, in person, it's also different as well. All right, some great advice from Dr. Katie Kamkar, who's with the University of Toronto's Department of Psychiatry. Doctor, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You as well.